There are certain moments and words that shaped a new era in pro wrestling. Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. Brett screwed Brett. Die, Rocky, die. Suck it! Introducing the Book of Wrestling, 25 catchphrases that explain the Attitude Era. Tune in as we relive one of the most exciting, intense, and over-the-top times in WWE with new interviews with the voices that made the promos, calls, and catchphrases into history. Listen now. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. A lawyer named Saul Goodman? Bob Odenkirk didn't think he was right for the role. When Breaking Bad creator Vince Gilligan called to offer it to him during the second season of the show in 2009, he almost said no. Here's how Odenkirk remembers it. He starts talking about the character, and I go, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, Saul Goodman, I said, yeah, just so you know, I'm not Jewish. And I said, there's a lot of pretty good Jewish actors in Hollywood. I think he can find somebody. And then he goes, oh, well, he's not Jewish either. He's Irish. And I go, oh, okay. Well, so am I. I'm half Irish. My real name's McGill. Yeah, the Jew thing I just do for the homeboys. They all want to pipe it, member of the tribe, so to speak. Once Odenkirk learned Saul's true heritage, he moved on to more important matters. Producer Peter Gould was also on the phone that day. Then Bob started talking about his hair. Bob is just a genius at thinking about how his character looks, that especially hair. Saul Goodman had a toupee. He wore colorful suits and a pinky ring, and he drove a Cadillac. On the surface, he was a cartoon attorney, the kind that may have popped up in the 90s on Mr. Show, the sketch comedy series Odenkirk created with David Cross. Yet there was much more to Saul than that. But at the beginning, no one could see it. Originally, Saul Goodman was only guaranteed to stick around Breaking Bad long enough to get future meth kingpin Walter White and his partner Jesse Pinkman out of a legal jam. After that, it was unclear where he'd end up, maybe in a shallow grave in the New Mexico desert. In fact, Gould even remembers Odenkirk asking him if the writers were going to kill off Saul quickly. I said, no, I think we're, we like this guy. There's something about Saul. There's something a little bit throwbacky about Saul. There's something a little bit classic Hollywood, classic scamster, a little bit of martini glass and uh, Playboy magazine kind of quality to the guy. 
Not long after Saul made his debut midway through season two of Breaking Bad, it became very apparent that he was more than just comic relief. Even before the AMC series wrapped in 2013, Gilligan and Gould were talking about a Saul Goodman spinoff. Breaking Bad star Brian Cranston, for one, was excited about the possibility. He was able to plant his flag in an established show written by a, a team of writers who were so compelling and convincing and intriguing. Once they saw Bob and this character that he was bringing to it, they opened up to it and said, oh, there's more. Oh, there's still more. Oh, there's even more. And it just kept widening. And that was the birth of, of Better Call Saul. Nearly a decade later, Better Call Saul is about to start its sixth and final season. Now is the time to tell Saul's origin story through the eyes of those who brought him to life. This is the ringer oral history of how Bob Odenkirk turned Albuquerque's favorite criminal lawyer into one of the most iconic characters on TV. Part one. Well, you call a lawyer. By the time Breaking Bad premiered in January 2008, Odenkirk had long since established himself as a legendary comedy writer and performer. He'd also piled up credits as an actor, director, and producer. But he was still looking for the kind of passion project that had eluded him since the days of Mr. Show. My agent called and said, they're going to offer you a role on Breaking Bad. Don't say no. It's the kind of role that someone wins an Emmy for. And I said, uh, all right, well, I'll, you know, let me think about it for a minute. And then I called a friend, Reed Harrison, and I said, do you know anything about this show, Breaking Bad? And he was like, oh, my God, it's the best show on television. The best show. Harrison, a comedy writer and friend of Odenkirk's, remembers the conversation well. My immediate reaction was kind of like, all right, first of all, hang up. You shouldn't be talking to me. You should be calling back right now and taking it. Here's Breaking Bad producer Peter Goulds, who went on to co-create Better Call Saul with Vince Gilligan. Pretty early in season two, the idea came up that uh, Walt and Jesse would have to sell drugs themselves. They, they didn't have Tuco to just hand them a bag of cash for the drugs. And of course, the next thing you think is, well, if you start having Jesse's idiot friends selling drugs on the street, they're going to get caught. And what happens when one of them gets caught? Well, you call a lawyer. And so it started off very much as a piece of uh, story problem solving. One day Vince walks in and says, you know, what if they, the lawyer they go to is like a guy named Saul Good? You know, and he's, he's, he's kind of a, uh, you know, a, a, a little bit of a scammer uh, himself. And then one of the other writers said, well, Saul, good man. And then somebody else said, well, what if the license, what if he had a lawyer up license plate? And we just started having fun talking about this character. In fact, we had a lot of fun talking about it. And pretty soon the idea of, you know, the bus benches and, and all the different things that he gets into started materializing. But they were all in service of the Walter White story. Everything about Saul really served the story of Walter White and Jesse Pinkman. He was, you know, we weren't 
adding him in because we thought it would be a, a fun spinoff character. The star of Breaking Bad, Walter White himself, Brian Cranston, had a good idea of who Saul Goodman would be. This dubious lawyer and fast-talking, slick, unctuous kind of character. We came up with a list. My wife put at the top of the list Bob Odenkirk. And you know who else put the name at the top of their list was Bialy Thomas, our casting folks. And Vince and I were both huge fans of Bob's from uh, Mr. Show, especially. There's a few scenes in Mr. Show where I could point to and say, I show some chops as an actor, some ability to lose myself with a degree of, of modulation and sensitivity, but not much. I mean, mostly it's sketch comedy, and you can be pretty goddamn broad in sketch comedy. You can even break in sketch comedy, and the audience doesn't mind. To that point, here's Odenkirk's version of getting serious on a Mr. Show sketch. He plays a boss who likes it when his employees stick up for themselves, except when David Cross's character tries to do it. Well, I'm glad I'm fired, because, uh, because this company is run by a lunatic. You've got guts. The guts of a man who's fired. <laughs> fine, man. I'm out of here. That's fine. You know, you need help, and, and I, I really hope you get it. Wait. Don't go. Now go. You're fired. Comedian Bill Burr, who plays henchman Patrick Kuby on Breaking Bad, recalls going to a taping of Mr. Show in the 90s. Because I'd watched sketch comedy my whole life, and I never saw one sketch leads into another sketch, and there was singing. I remember David Cross singing as this redneck. He was all of a sudden in a studio singing. It was just like, I, it was such a good thing to be exposed to, like the bar being that high. What surprised me is that they gave me the part because of Mr. Show. I thought, and I never said a word about it because I didn't want to create a kerfuffle. I thought they gave me the part because I played Stevie Grant on Larry Sanders. And I was sure that one day Vince would tell me the story of how he saw me and Larry Sanders, and that's what gave him the idea. But uh, the truth is, Peter wrote the uh, first episode that featured Saul, and he wrote a lot of the characters' runs and a lot of the ways in which Saul talks and is funny. There's a lot of comedians getting dramatic work now, and I feel like Breaking Bad was at the forefront. I mean, there was, I remember one time, we were doing a scene. It was me, Lavelle Crawford, amazing stand-up comedian, and Bob Odenkirk. And we were in his lawyer office, which was iconic. To me, that was the Seinfeld Diner. I couldn't believe I was sitting there. We had the top of the scene. It was just the three of us before Mr. White came in. And I remember sitting down and thinking to myself, you know, for the first 30 seconds of, of this scene, Three stand-up comedians are going to be holding down the best drama on television right now. And I was like, how fucking cool is this? There's always a um, comic element to both shows. And, and we always say that, you know, it's a little bit like peanut butter and chocolate. They, they make each other taste better. If there is a secret sauce to both shows, I think that's, that's certainly part of it. Because the drama makes the comedy funnier. I don't think the comedy on either show would stand by itself as comedy, but the comedy certainly makes the drama more dramatic. 
part two. Look at what we get to do. Saul Goodman was a true original, but to fully get into character, Odenkirk needed a bit of inspiration. He drew it from Hollywood producer Robert Evans's memoir, The Kid Stays in the Picture. I would still rehearse by doing the Evans voice in my trailer, doing Saul's runs. Once I knew the lines, I would do it as Evans. And I don't know how much it informed my own performance in the end, because I didn't try to do a Robert Evans impersonation. I had read his book twice. I'd listened to his book on tape twice all the way through. This is a guy who could talk and talk and really entertain you. And what I found was a kind of a sing song that doesn't get repetitive. Like he's very good at breaking things off and cliffhanger pauses and moments. And uh, if you're going to listen to me talk for five pages, I got to be doing something interesting, saying something interesting, but also working it, working that material. So Evans was, to me, an entertaining speaker, and he knew how to sort of choreograph his words and his tonal shifts to uh, intrigue you. And so I think I got something from that. At the very least, I entertained myself. Here's Jonathan Banks, who plays fixer Mike Ehrmantraut on Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. My first impressions of Bobby, I thought he was a little nervous. <laughs> but that, that, went, that went along with the character. You know, that was definitely Saul. Brian Cranston was immediately impressed with what Odenkirk brought to the character. Bob had that to pick up and that kind of fast-paced you know, slick kind of character. And there were little hooks, little connector lines that he was able to add to bring him from, to trapeze himself from one line to the next line to the next. That's always really good for an actor to feel confident in being able to connect thoughts. And in his character, which was always the gift of Gab, you know, he was able to to bring that. I love it when Bobby plays the, you know, the bewildered, put upon, I don't know what I'm ever going to do. How do I get out of this character? Um, no, it serves me well, because then all I have to do is stand over and say, do that again, I'm going to break your kneecaps. And <laughs> it makes my job easier, let's put it that way. You know, the first thing I shot was the commercial, which was a lot like a Mr. Show moment. I mean, it was a loud commercial. I mean, Saul is being outrageous. He's playing a part of a loud lawyer, and he's doing it purposefully and consciously. Hi, I'm Saul Goodman. Did you know that you have rights? The Constitution says you do, and so do I. I believe that until proven guilty, every man, woman, and child in this country is innocent. And that's why I fight for you, Albuquerque. Better call Saul. So that's allowed to be almost comic level performance because it's uh, it's self-aware in its bigness. Producer Peter Gould says that the show's writers loved dropping Saul Goodman into the world of Breaking Bad. He was very useful in the Walter White universe. He could explain to Walt anything we needed explained to Walt. He could introduce ideas like the disappearer. He could act as kind of a connector with Mike and ultimately uh, with Gus Spring. He was super handy. He was a skeleton key. You know, I talk about how I hadn't seen much of Breaking Bad uh, before I acted in it. 
uh, only a few minutes on the plane. One of the first things that Bob's <laughs> said to me, I think he started in our second season. And I think the first thing he said to me was, I've never seen the show. <laughs> so it's like, well, okay. You've never seen the show. All right. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> so I've kind of given me giving him a lowdown on on what it is. Odenkirk and Cranston's first scene together takes place in Saul's office. Walter, who's trying to keep a low profile by wearing aviator sunglasses and an Albuquerque isotopes cap, is posing as the concerned uncle of Jesse's doofus buddy, Badger. He's been busted for dealing meth, and Walter wants to make sure he won't confess to the DEA. Mr. Uh, Mayhew, nice of you to come down, please. Oh, look at you. Should I uh, call the FBI and tell them I found D.B. Cooper? <laughs> Joking. I do remember that situation. I remember especially when Jesse Pinkman introduces me to him outside his office, his cheesy office. He said, you don't want a criminal lawyer. You want a criminal lawyer. <laughs> and it's like, ah, yes. He really helped me uh, just know the show just by sitting with him. Like I said, I hadn't seen much of it. I knew it was a drama. I didn't know how heavy it was. It was all about just tuning into Brian, which might tell you a little something about my own approach to acting, which is to read the room as best I can. Something Bob said to Vincent when we started, he said, uh, don't go easy on me. Make things life as difficult as possible. Put me in physically uncomfortable positions. There was one scene early on in Breaking Bad when we kidnap him and we're out there and it was freezing that night and the wind was whipping and the cold wind just cuts under. It was, I don't know if it was single digits, but it was close to it. What I loved about that scene was the outrageousness of the scenario and how we got to do it so Realistically, we were out in the desert. We weren't some green screen. We were in the middle of the night. I was kneeling in front of a freshly dug grave, you know. You can't tell from the footage, but it was a full-fledged sandstorm. And the actors were all getting sand up their noses, in the back of their throats. It's like we're freezing. I'm holding a gun on him. My, my body is shaking. And I knew he was a, a, a part of the brethren. You know, he is part of the that ilk of people when we're when i was saying and it's like look at what we get to do man we're out here freezing our asses up but this is how we make a living and i'm thinking can you believe it he was really excited about embracing the difficulty of it the momentary uncomfortableness is accepted because the long-term a uh, gift of being able to be storytellers for a living always prevails. It just was one of the best production scenarios I've ever been a part of that wasn't all cheated and faked and, sh and short-handed, but actually played out with this grand and very real feeling, because it was real. It all lent itself to this big and uh, glorious drama that I was suddenly a part of. That night in the desert, 
Walt and Jesse officially become Saul Goodman's clients. Okay, you're now both officially represented by Saul Goodman and Associates. Your secrets are safe with me under threat of disbarment. All right? Take the ski mask off. I feel like I'm talking to the weather underground here. Part three. The worst thing it would be is a failed experiment. Walter White may not have survived Breaking Bad's five-season run, but Saul Goodman did. After all, he's someone who can talk his way out of almost anything. As the show exploded in popularity during its later seasons, talk of a Saul spinoff began. First as a bit, then seriously. Initially, Odenkirk wasn't convinced it would work. Better Call Saul co-creator Peter Gould remembers the idea being tossed around. It was sort of a joke in the room that, you know, oh, that this idea is too silly. We'll do that on the Saul Goodman spinoff. And I didn't take it seriously at all because Breaking Bad already seemed like a gift from the gods. And it, was, it seemed like hubris to keep going or to think that that might be real. But Vince really did want to do it. And I think he had a lot of reasons for it. I mean, we both loved the character. We all loved working with Bob. Here's Brian Cranston. You felt what Bob was able to bring to it in Breaking Bad. There was a sense of history of a broken person. There wasn't enough real estate to get into a deep background discovery of him and Breaking Bad. And I think that's what Vince and, and Peter felt, is that I think we have an iceberg situation and we've just tipped it. We've got a lot of real estate down below that hasn't been discovered. We go for a walk through Burbank and often ended up getting a couple of beers. And we just talk about what this thing could be. And we had so many ideas that did not end up working out. Or In fact, the first time we talked to AMC and Sony about it, we did say, it's a half hour. We think it should be a half hour. I never felt completely comfortable making it a half hour for one simple reason, which is that true comedy writing is an art and a craft of its own. And those real comedy writers are a breed apart. They have a whole different skill set, certainly than I do. And I was concerned that if we went for the half hour, we'd essentially be uh, in competition or compared to the, the, the really funny half hours. Vince and Peter were after something different from Breaking Bad, but working in the same area. The question was whether he was willing to do it, because Bob, he's made no secret of the fact that he felt torn between his responsibilities as a father, and he's a super, super involved father. It seemed like, in his mind, there was a conflict between the two, being away in Albuquerque so much. The first lunch that we had to talk about it, I could tell he was that was a hitch for him when he found out that we were not going to shoot it in L.A. They were young, 13 and 15. And then the next six years, their dad was gone for half a year or more. But they grew to like visiting me in Albuquerque. We would get kind of stop and go signals. You know, we would meet him and feel that we were going to do it and then hear through the grapevine that maybe he wasn't. When my daughter asked me if it's bad, how bad would it be? And I said, well, it wouldn't be bad. The worst thing it would be is a failed experiment. Of course, I knew that if it was a failed experiment, there'd be a certain uh, amount of people who, in retrospect, in relation, I should say, to Breaking Bad, would consider it a big bomb. 
But the truth is, I just didn't think it would be done in a sloppy way without integrity or purpose. It may not work, but it would, it would, you'd have to give it some credit, I thought. You know, that would be the worst it would be. Before shooting Better Call Saul, Odenkirk asked Cranston to meet. Here's how Odenkirk described the scene in his new memoir, Comedy, 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 Drama. It was cold in L.A., it can happen, but still, we sat outside, because inside the coffee shop were 10 people writing screenplays, and it's not good to be around that if you're a recognizable face. But here I was going in to being the lead, and it wasn't a character part, it wasn't a small part, and I just needed to hear from Brian something that sounded like work that I could do. I wanted to hear if there was any clue or trick. I told him a story of when I was on Malcolm in the Middle, the star of the show, Frankie Munoz, was a boy. The next star was Jane Kaczmarek, and she really didn't want the mantle of leading the cast. So I saw there was a, a void, and I thought, well, someone has to do this. So I stepped in and kind of led the cast on cast meetings and things, issues that we dealt with. I think he thought I was just having second thoughts or needing a spiritual boost. But I really, I just wanted to hear something that sounded like hard work and the meat of doing the job. And that's what he gave me. Other people were, would be called, oh, you're a, you're a star. You're a star. And I would immediately push back and deny it. I said, no, 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 no. I'm just a working actor. No, no, no. And what I didn't realize is that I was spending a lot of energy denying that position from outside sources that wanted to place that uh, title onto me. And as I regale this story and I tell Bob this, I, 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 I told him, I said, I realized that I was spending maybe more energy trying to push away that title, that responsibility, that position in the industry. It, and then I just got in my own way. And so I stepped out of the way and just embraced it. Look, I hadn't gone to acting school, and Brian had presumably done that and been an actor his whole life. He laid it out. He laid out a day in your life and a weekend in your life and how you, you, you hit the script and you work and you rehearse and you focus every chance you get, and that's how you're ready when you get on set. And I can do that. I, I, can, I can just throw hours at it. Part four, Saul Goodman wasn't even his name. First episode of Better Call Saul, which aired in February 2015, opens where Breaking Bad leaves off. Odenkirk's character, a wanted accomplice of Walter White, is now hiding in Nebraska and working as a Cinnabon manager named Gene Takovic. Then the pilot flashes back. Aside from the occasional glimpse into the future, the series mostly focuses on the years before Saul Goodman is fully formed. At the start, Saul is just Jimmy McGill, a reformed small-time Chicago con man who's now a small-time Albuquerque lawyer. There's plenty of crossover from the world of Breaking Bad. Fixer Mike Ehrmantraut and eventually drug lord Gus Fring both appear. There was also a new cast of characters, including Jimmy's high-achieving older brother, Chuck McGill, and his confidant, Kim Wexler. 
Odenkirk, his co-stars, and the writers enjoyed fleshing out Jimmy's backstory. Here's Better Call Saul co-creator Peter Gould. We learned so much about Jimmy from watching Bob. And one of the things that you see is that Bob has this incredible energy and focus that's unlike anything any I've seen from anybody else. As it turns out, in that first season, I got hit with so much material and so much Saul Goodman chatter that I almost couldn't do it. I, it was almost too much to even fit into a week. And at a certain point, after about four or five weeks, I asked for extra time, and they did give it to me. Jonathan Banks enjoyed watching Odenkirk work. What I saw was, this is a guy who is committed, and Bobby Odenkirk is smart. I mean, the amount of dialogue that was loaded on him, and he was losing his voice. I mean, he was as nervous as a cat. And that's, again, my perspective. But my God, did he rise to the occasion. As we kept watching him, Jimmy being a failure didn't seem as funny. He started to have a whole Willie Loman characteristic to him. There's a pathos. When Brian Cranston began watching Better Call Saul, he could feel it too. He brought with it sort of a wounded bird mentality and sensibility to him, to Saul Goodman. And then when I started watching Better Call Saul and realized, oh, Saul Goodman wasn't even his name. And it's like, there's a whole history here. And it's like, that makes perfect sense. Now that he had his own show, Saul Goodman needed a partner in crime. Kim Wexler was the kind of role that Ray Seahorn had been waiting for. I got the first script and then watched Bob literally create this like Arthur Miller or like Glengarry Glen Ross character. It, it just became this whole other thing that was beautiful to watch. Then when they announced they were going to do a spinoff, I, I had, like many people, I, had, I was not sure what the tone would be. If it was going to be more broadly comedic or um, is he going to be, you know, this sleazy guy getting up to antics constantly. You know, Bob and Ray, you want to talk about chemistry. I would say we felt that chemistry right from the first rehearsal reading she did. It was the scene, I want to say episode three of season one, him calling me and waking me up in the middle of the night and I'm in bed and he's trying to get information about the Kettleman case. I very clearly have a boundary about it. Like we're not discussing cases. There is an incredible closeness, whether that is a very long friendship or a used to be dating or a might start to date. Like there's something going on there. But you never really know if that was a genuine connection or if it just felt right that day and it's going to be a problem down the line. But it did feel right that day. Bob was sitting there and he seemed a bit aloof for a second, but we were then told to go ahead and rehearse just me and Bob, everyone would leave the room and we'll come back. Like, why don't you guys go through the scene a couple of times to just feel comfortable with each other. And when they left, I realized Bob was staring at his shoe. One part of your brain wants to go like, okay, clearly he doesn't like me and this is going to go terribly and this is going to be the worst chemistry you read of my whole life. But another part of me was like, or the only fact present right now is that Bob is looking at his shoe. So let's start there. <laughs> and I did. I said, 
hey, did your shoes come without the laces or did you take them out? He looked up at me and he said, they came this way. My wife got them for me at the shoe department and ended up telling me how he had been concerned. He had never been the person that people have to do a chemistry read against where their job and their hopes and dreams are pinned on reading with him and he's precast. And he was very concerned about making sure he looked respectful, but not overdressed, but not too casual. And that his wife, Naomi, who's amazing and lovely, had helped him. And it was this wonderful moment where I was like, he was so honest, but it took me being honest instead of in my head about what I thought he was thinking for us to get there. And then that's where we started from to read the scene. And it was great. It was just like, I mean, I don't know if I'll ever duplicate it for the rest of my whole life because I always assume everything is negative against me. <laughs> I've had some pretty amazing relationships in my life. My wife, number one, Naomi, David Cross, and Ray and I are on that same level of we just fit together. Our priorities marry up enough for us to spend those many hours and that much time and sweat and focus on this thing that we share and not trip on each other and not feel frustrated or annoyed or claustrophobic with each other. It's a lucky thing. All we knew was that she was a lawyer who clearly had a, um, a connection with Jimmy. And, you know, I don't think we got too deeply into it until season two. And my God, look where we are now. The show that we thought was a comedy about a goofy lawyer helping crazy clients turned out to be kind of a heartbreaking love story. Jimmy and Kim's partnership is the heart of Better Call Saul. But the key to what makes Jimmy tick is his relationship with his big brother. In the early 90s, a heinous prank nearly lands Jimmy in prison. Here's Jimmy's explanation of what happened in graphic detail. So I saw that thing, and I had, I'd had a few, like I said. And uh, I climbed up top, and I may have defecated uh, through the sunroof. Not my finest hour. I'll grant you that. Chuck McGill a New Mexico attorney, offers to get his brother out of trouble under one condition. Jimmy straightens out his life. For a while, he does. Jimmy moves to Albuquerque. First, he works in the mailroom at Chuck's firm. Then he earns a law degree. He also cares for his brother, who's convinced he has electromagnetic sensitivity. It doesn't take long for the tension between them to rise. Michael McKean, a comedy legend in his own right, plays Chuck. McKean remembers Gilligan and Gould explaining Chuck's condition to him. They called, they talked to me about the character and, and uh, generally about his affliction. I, I said it sounded very interesting. I did a little research on it and you know, learned it was a real thing and, and that I had to treat it like a real thing, no matter what happened down the line. And they did me the great favor, by the way, of not telling me that I was a man with mental problems at all. I, I, it, this was really happening to me. We could see pretty early on was uh, how Bob's character got under Michael McKean's character's skin. That was a little bit of a surprise. I think we thought that Chuck kind of tolerated Jimmy. And then McKean played the character with such pride. And Bob has this desperation about him to please his older brother that it, it, we started writing to that, to that, to that scorn 
and desperation and the, the constant, you know, running towards and running away that those two characters had. When two siblings are that far apart and one of them is a big deal achiever, one of them gets out of high school at 16, has his, has his law shingle up when he's 23 years old, that's, that's some, that's, you are left in the dust more than, uh, you know, more than you can imagine. I, I think it's a deep well of hurt that anyone could have. Late in the first season, Jimmy figures out that it's Chuck, not Chuck's partner, Howard, that kept him from being hired at their firm. This leads to a confrontation where Chuck finally admits that he doesn't think Jimmy is a real lawyer. Chuck's honesty is crushing, both to his brother and the audience. I know what you were, what you are. People don't change. You're slipping Jimmy. And slipping Jimmy I can handle just fine, but slipping Jimmy with a law degree is like a chimp with a machine gun. The law is sacred. If you abuse that power, people get hurt. This is not a game. You have to know on, on some level, I know you know I'm right. You know I'm right. I just think that the soul of the player, who is essentially what what Jimmy is, and the Achiever are just two different lives. I loved playing that scene. It was an important scene to me, the most important scene in the first season, and really an important scene for the whole series. It was the most I've been asked to reach inside myself and connect with this person, this other character that I was playing. I don't have those feelings towards my siblings. Uh, We're friends and we don't have a rivalry that I can tell. I had also been in this character's skin enough uh, at that point in the season that I felt for him, just for his own real experience of, of making a genuine effort to win his brother over and uh, and f- discovering that <laughs> his brother was the one who doomed him. And, um, and I think that was almost enough to work with, was to just be Jimmy and, and think about how that would feel. Part five. Well, I'm not dead. As the final season of Better Call Saul approaches, it's clear that Jimmy is the man that Chuck warned he'd become. After fully falling into a life of crime, can Saul Goodman be redeemed? Will Kim Wexler be okay? Ray Seahorn understands that concern. First of all, it's warranted worrying about Kim. (laughs) Whatever happens, one thing is certain. The experiment that Odenkirk was unsure about was a success. I think we all were in the same place of like, we're going to make an honest effort. We're going to push ourselves, but this may not work. And uh, if you've been in this business long enough, you should be expecting that to be the outcome. So I'm more surprised that it just plain worked and that enough people were able to tune in to the um, ways in which it's not like Breaking Bad. Odenkirk may have been surprised, but his colleagues were not. Right from the start, they followed his lead. The first thing he said to us at lunch, Vincent me, he said, you know, I, I don't think I need a, a full trailer. I think I can have, be in a two-banger. And by dint of an example, he's not, he's not taking all his privileges. He's there for the work. 
he said, I talked to Brian and he said, if you have one, then other people should have one. And every time you add another trailer, add 15 minutes to a company move. And then tell me how much you wish you could get home in time to get enough sleep. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's so good. <laughs> he immediately made it his business to uh, befriend and open the door to uh, actors who are only there for a day or for a week or for a small role. Uh, you know, it's, it's uh, Peter DeSeth who plays uh, ADA Oakley, who appeared in the second episode and has been one of our favorites all the way through as a local Albuquerque actor. And he told me this story about there was a day where he couldn't go and rehearse with Bob uh, because he had to babysit his child. And so Bob came to Peter's house to rehearse. I think that he really liked being in a hit. I mean, we all do and we all did. But there, I think there was something about, oh, this not only works, but other people think it does too. And we got we got a good one here. There was one point where the late, incredibly great David Carr came to do his last media piece that he did was on Better Call Saul. And he had come to set and he had rolled up an office chair and was talking to Michael and Bob. And these guys are trading stories, but also a, a very real conversation. And Michael, like Bob, doesn't try to, he's never looking for a place to do a bit. He's never looking to one up somebody. They were having this conversation that was comparing, I'm not kidding. It was like, it was like eight books of complete different genres from different time periods. And like, oh, that's like the article from blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Remember when so-and-so did a sketch in the 1938 radio show about, it was like insane the amount of illusions and references that were going on. They were like, and I'm walking by and I can hear them. I'm trying to listen. They're like, Ray, roll a chair up, roll a chair up. Now, I love the stuff we did in the desert too, because there was, it was more than that involved. You're doing a scene, you're both exhausted, you're both sweating, and it really is hot. And up comes a dog out of nowhere, a mangy dog. And she comes up and she gets under the bush with us in the shade. But Bobby took that dog. This is my affection for Bobby. He took that dog home. The dog was pregnant. So out pop eight puppies. <laughs> and, and homes are found for all of them. So that moment, that day, I promise you, is far and away my favorite, because there were extraneous things going on, but it was my favorite, favorite scene and moment. Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul led to more juicy dramatic roles for Odenkirk, who in 2021 starred in his first action movie, Nobody. But last year turned out to be an extraordinarily difficult time for him. In July, on the set of Better Call Saul, he collapsed. It was later determined that he'd suffered a heart attack. His co-stars, Patrick Fabian and Ray Seahorn, watched him fall and called for a medic. Odenkirk told the New York Times that it took three defibrillator shocks to bring his heart back into rhythm. An ambulance brought him to an Albuquerque hospital where he had a procedure to clear plaque in his heart. He spent a week recovering from his heart attack, an event he doesn't remember. It's a complete blank for me. It's like I fell through a time hole and came up the, uh, about a week and a half later, kind of groggy, but pretty much myself with no memory of any of it and a kind of a strange, like chipper attitude that was like, <laughs> let's go back to work. Hey, why is everybody so down? 
because you almost died. Did I? Oh, okay. Well, I'm not dead. I'm fine. You know, let's go to work. Let's go shoot the show. If he had gone to his trailer, we would have a different outcome. But he chose to stay on set and was hanging with Patrick and I. Thank God. I know that it was really upsetting. Uh, and, and, and just to everyone on the crew, every the, the whole group was, I, I, I'm trying to find the right word, you know, it's just upset, shaken. We didn't know to what degree he was in trouble. And then you worry about him. God, I don't, I mean, he's in the hospital. I'm, I, I'm calling him. Then you rely on, on the network of people who, you know, are friends of friends and saying, have you heard from Bob? And then you wait, you wait. And you wait to hear good or bad, what's gonna go on. I contacted Ray and uh, there was, you know, stuff came down the pipeline from, from uh, Peter and Vince and say, it's resting. I had to make an effort to hear about what happened think about what happened, picture my friends all gathered around me, pictured what that day was like, what my wife went through. The surreal part was everyone's tenderness and kindness towards me. And it's because they were traumatized, not me. Uh, and, and then you know, when we found out that he was gonna be okay, that was the, a glorious day. If you've ever, lost someone and most of us have to come back the next day and go never mind you can have a whole second chance is one of the most amazing things you could ever experience there's no way to even like short change like what a gift that feels like for sure he is a gift in my life anyway i'll try not to cry i'm very close with him and his family and it was it was traumatic and uh thank god he didn't leave set for all of us to 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 really be able to embrace him and, and say, I'm glad you're okay. And, um, you know, you dodged a bullet and by extension, so did we. Boy, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. But I, once the initial crisis had passed, I knew he was going to be better than ever. And, you know, and just, he's one of those guys. He's very, he's very responsible, really takes care of himself. And when we found out that he was actually going to come back, I think it was a little worrying, you know, because you always worry, you know, is he coming back too soon? And knowing Bob, when I talked to him and he was in recovery, he was, he was, he was calling me and saying, send me scripts. I got time to read. And I hear in the background, Naomi, his wife saying, no, they told you not to read. You can't sit and read scripts. You're supposed to be quiet for a little while. Uh, so he was raring to go maybe before he should have been. We all felt close to each other after six years of making this show. We spend 14 hours a day together, maybe more. We get very exhausted together. We celebrate each other. We we become very, very close in the crucible of making a show like Better Call Saul. The first shot you see of him this season actually was shot after. It cuts seamlessly. And what was wonderful was to see that he was absolutely himself. He had all his energy. He had all his goodwill. I'd say that he's um, he's always been a generous, kind person and a great collaborator. But I, I think there's an extra measure of of uh, generosity and helpfulness and openness. 
to him now? I think the impact on my family and my crew and the and castmates was so big. It has affected me in retrospect in like a weird kind of bounce back. It's that's what's been a bigger effect than the actual heart attack. Um, and then the kindness that I got from the from people on social media and just from strangers and fans, that's inexplicable to me. I still don't, I don't entirely grasp why. Um, I'm thankful for it, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, in awe of it, and I don't know what to do except to try to live up to it. <laughs> because I don't think I've been the kindest, most generous person. And uh, and so I got this outpouring of love and I had to ask, you know, why well, don't deserve this? Have they got the wrong Bob Odenkirk yet again? What, did you think Saul Goodman would let someone else have the last word? No, and he'll tell you as much. I believe that until proven guilty, every man, woman and child in this country is innocent. And that's why I fight for you, Albuquerque. Better call Saul. Season 6 of Better Call Saul premieres on AMC on Monday, April 18th. This Ringer oral history was written, reported, and narrated by Alan Siegel. It was edited by Justin Sales and Andrew Grudadaro and produced by Steve Allman.